All right, guys, good morning. If we can, let's open up our Bibles to Judges chapter 3. Judges chapter 3, today we'll be looking at verses 12 to 30. 12 to 30, Judges chapter 3, verses 12 to 30. Uh, during this time, I'd like to dismiss our kids also to our children's ministry. Let's just give our kids a hand for being with us today. Always a joy to worship uh, with them. Um, my name is Kenson. I have the honor of being a pastor here at Park, specifically our Bridgeport location. So always a joy uh, to be with you guys, and Bridgeport sends their love to you guys. Once again, Judges chapter 3, verses 12 to 30, page 202 in the church Bibles. If you, go, if you guys grab one of those, coming in 202. You know, this morning we continue back in our sermon series in the book of Judges. And I just want to remind you guys that the book of Judges is a story within a story. That you have the immediate story of a specific judge and what that judge did. But then you also have this larger redemptive narrative on top of that. And you see that in the pattern or cycle we have with all the stories in Judges. And let me just show it to you again here that you guys saw in the little video there. That if you look at the cycle here, that it first starts off with people in rebellion, living as though there was no God. And because of their sin that they bring into their lives, they bring oppression, enslavement, suffering. And it's in that pain that they call out and cry out to God for help. And it's in, gra in God's grace, he sends a deliverer by raising up judges. Now, a judge here is not the same thing as a judge that we would see in a courtroom. A judge here is more like a tribal leader or chief. You know, think more like Braveheart and less like Judge Judy, okay? So in Judges here, we have 12 in total, and God uses them to save his people and bring peace. But here's the problem with all of this. Once that judge dies... So does the peace, and the people go right back into sin and oppression, and the cycle starts all over again. This is the greater story in the entire book of Judges, and this is important for us to keep in mind as we go through the sermon series, is because just like the nation of Israel, we too fall back into sin. We too live as though there is no God. We too are deeply flawed people. But the good news of Judges is this is that wherever there is flawed people, we will always find a faithful God who can save. The story of Judges is our story and our need for an ultimate deliverer, and his name is Jesus Christ. So with that, let's pray, and let's jump in to our next judge here. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for, Lord, just an opportunity, Lord, to worship you, Lord, to give towards your work. And God, now as we continue in worship, by sitting under your word, they got that our hearts would be humbled, they got that our hearts would be filled with delight, because we're hearing from you. And God, for myself, Lord, just put me to the side and help Christ be exalted in every way. And friends, before I close this in prayer, would you say this to God? God, use my weakness to make your name great. Would you say that as a prayer to him? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You know, let me show you four people here on the screen behind me. Four people. Tony Evans, Joni Erickson Tata, John Perkins, Corey Tenboom. Now, what do all these people have in common? 
Now, not much on paper. We have men and women, educated and uneducated. We have different nationalities. We have some who are young, some who are old, and some who have passed away. They are all different, yet they have this all in common. God has used their weakness to make his name great. Tony Evans was born with a speech impediment and struggled throughout school. But today, Pastor Tony Evans leads one of the largest churches in the country, and his preaching ministry has impacted millions. Even to this day, when you hear him preach, you can hear that lisp. You have Joni Erickson Tata, who at the age of 17 was hurt in a diving accident that left her quadriplegic. It was a devastating injury. But today, she, shared, she has shared her faith with millions of people and have helped many who are suffering to pursue Jesus Christ. You have John Perkins, an African-American man who grew up in the racially segregated South, and he saw his brother murdered because of racism. His hurt was deep. But today, John Perkins leads thousands of pastors through the Christian Community Development Association and how to bring racial reconciliation and healing to communities. And finally, Corey Tenboom. Her family saved hundreds from the Nazi death camps until one day they raided her home and she was sent with her family to the death camp. Her father died 10 days later and her sister shortly after was killed in the gas chamber. Her loss was beyond words. But because of a clerical error made by the Nazis, she was spared. But now Corey Tenboon has had a chance to go throughout the entire world teaching on God's forgiveness and has even met the guard who led her sister to the gas chamber and she forgave him. God delights in using our weakness to make his name great. Now I know that in hearing that it sounds a little bit backwards because we live in a culture that praises the strong. That we have countless books helping us to discover our strengths. That we have dozens of inventories that we can take so that we can give our maximum effectiveness. That when you listen to sports radio or watch ESPN, everyone is always talking about Jordan or LeBron, who's the greatest GOAT, right? We are obsessed with being strong. It doesn't matter if you're a professional, a stay-at-home mom, a student, a pastor. No one wants to be seen as weak. But here's the thing. Throughout Scripture, over and over and over again, God uses the weak. God uses the secondborn instead of the firstborn. God uses women in a male-dominated society. Moses was fearful and stuttered, but God used him to deliver Israel. That for the last two weeks, we've talked about Gideon here, and we saw his fear and insecurity, yet God uses him and just a handful of men to defeat hundreds of thousands. That we see David, a man after God's own heart, and God had the option to choose the strongest from the line of Jesse to be king, but God passes over son, over son, after this son, after this son, after this son, until they get to the forgotten shepherd boy. And with Jesus... When he was looking for his first followers, he didn't choose the elite in society, but fishermen. God delights in using our weakness to make his name great. Because it's in our weakness, we give the very platform that shows off God's best and greatest work. You know, today we're going to be looking at the story of Ehud. And we're going to see how God uses his weakness to make his name great. 
Now, some context to the story here. You know, Ehud comes after the first judge, Othniel. And under Othniel's leadership, we see in chapter 3, verse 11, Israel experiences peace for 40 years. But when Othniel dies, the cycle starts all over again. Chapter 3, verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Twice it says here in verse 12, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. That the Israelites here were so full of pride and rebellion that they lost all regard for God. There was no shame for their sin, no remorse. So God strengthens Eglon, the king of Moab, to discipline Israel. So Eglon, with the alliance of other nations, conquer and enslave Israel. It says in verse 13 that they took possession of the city of Palms. That's another name for the city of Jericho. Now, this is significant because it tells you the extent of Israel's faithlessness. Because Jericho was the very first city that Israel conquered as they entered into the promised land. That it was their very first step of incredible faith in following God. But now in faithlessness... They have lost the city. So for the next 18 years, they suffer under Eglon until they eventually call out to God for help. And God raises up Ehud to deliver them. Verse 15. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. Ehud is left-handed and he's a Benjaminite. That's what we know about him. And a, to be a Benjaminite means that you literally means that the son of the right hand. Now, this seems like random details here, but it's actually very important because Ehud's left-handedness matters because it actually speaks to his weakness. Because back in those days, being right-handed was seen as the dominant hand, that the right hand was a hand of authority and power. And what we read, that's why when we read in Scripture, you know, God's power and authority or the seat of honor, it's always symbolized by his right hand. So right hand is meant to be strong, and to be left-handed was meant to be weak. And it literally reads here in the Hebrew that Ehud could not use his right hand, that either he was handicapped or he was hurt in battle, but regardless, his right hand was useless. And in a society worse than ours, and how they treat the physically challenged, Ehud was considered useless because his right hand was useless by the people around him. But Ehud was a brave man and a man of faith. He volunteered to deliver a tribute payment to Eglon, so he loaded up his wagon with gold and also a little surprise, an 18-inch sword. Verse 16, and Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. You know, let me just show you a picture of what this sword would have looked like here. This sword would have been the length of my elbow to, my, to, the, to the tip of my arm here. That's how long it would have been. And what happens here is that Ehud goes ahead and gives this tribute to Eglon, who's described in verse 17 as a very fat man, okay? Now, think Jabba the Hutt here from Star Wars here, okay? This is what we're talking about here. And after presenting this tribute, Ehud lets Eglon know that I have a word from the Lord for you. And most likely, Eglon's thinking, all right, you know what? This is a good thing because you're, you're going to give me a blessing from Yahweh. That's what's going to happen here. Now, what we, now, hear what happens next. And you can't make this stuff up. Look at verse 20 here. This is what happens next after Eglon wants this blessing. It says this in verse 20. And Ehud 
came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber, and he who said, I have a message from God for you. And he, Eglon, arose from his seat, and Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Okay, you can't make this stuff up. This is in scripture. I didn't put it in there. Okay, this is in scripture here, okay. So what happens here is that Eglon here, he empties the room, he empties out all his guards, all the helpers, everyone, and he leans into Ehud, totally underestimating him, and Ehud sticks the sword in his belly, and Eglon being so fat that the sword literally gets sucked in to his belly, and Eglon, in shock and fear, poops himself. He poops himself. Now, this is a gross detail, but a necessary detail for our sermon here, Okay. Because this is how Ehud escapes. We read here that Ehud locks the private chamber door, escapes through the window, and no one in the palace has any clue what's happened here. Because as the servants walk back and forth from the chamber, it says in verse 24, the servants said this, Surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. That the stench of the dung made the servants believe that, you know what, Eglon, man, he's a big guy. He's just doing his thing. Okay, he needs to do his thing. And no one wanted to embarrass him, and they left him alone for a very long time until they eventually checked, out, checked on him and found him to be dead. But by this point, it was way too late. Ehud had escaped to Syrah, and when he got there, he did his brave heart thing. He took out the ram's horn, blew the trumpet, and, and led the Israelites into battle. And let me just show you a map of how this would have all played out here. That we read in verse 28 here that Ehud goes from Jericho back to Syrah to raise up the army, and he goes back down into Jericho, and he pushes the Moabites back to the fords of Jordan and utterly defeats them. And once again, it's in this story. We see an unlikely deliverer, we see a left-handed deliverer, and peace reigns in Israel for 80 years. 80 years. Now, what does this story mean for us? God delights in using weak people. That because of Ehud's left-handedness, he was perceived as weak, less than capable, not someone to be taken seriously. He was looked down upon because of his limitation. And can I just say, that is exactly the kind of person God delights in to make his name great. Because it's in our weakness we learn to depend on God. And all of us in this room here today, we have a weakness that God can use. Now for some of us, it's like Ehud. It's a physical outward limitation or condition or sickness. For others, it can be an uncontrollable circumstance that weakens you, such as financial or relational limitations. Or it can be found in our experiences, our family background, a tragedy. It's in these weaknesses, our left-handed issues, God can use them to make his name great. Let me just share with you two ways in how I think this plays out. First is this. Our left-handedness shows off God's strength. It shows off his strength. That as gifted and talented and as smart as the Apostle Paul was, he saw his left-handedness as a gift to him. But let me show you in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 what Paul says about his left-handedness, his weakness. He says this. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, 
a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that, I sh that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When we admit our weaknesses, we find God's strength. Now, so often, you know, when it comes to doing stuff for God, isn't it so true that we're quick to say that, you know what, I'm not good enough. I'm not competent, I'm not able, I'm not smart enough that we see our weakness as being a hindrance to God in his kingdom and we start using it as an excuse to never do anything ever risky for God because we just don't feel like we can do it. Or, or we start to use our weakness to, to hide, you know, our fear or, or our lack of faith. You know, for example, you might think that, you know what, Kenson, I'm no good at sharing my faith. I'm not gifted in sharing my faith with anyone. But here's the question. How do you know? Is it just those one or two times you did it back in high school and it was super awkward, right? That's hardly a big enough sample size to make a judgment like that. Could it be possible that what's happening here is that you're confusing fear for weakness? Fear for weakness. In Scripture, fear is never an acceptable excuse not to do something for God. Fear never brings glory to God. Faith brings glory to Him. And I would argue that if there's things in your life that you're scared to do for God, you must do it. Because it's until you get to a place where it's beyond you, until you, until, until, until when, until you get there, that's when people will begin to see God's power at work in and through you. Is it overseas missions? Do it. Is it to adopt? Do it. Is it to reconcile that relationship? Do it. Is it to be generous till it hurts? Do it. Is it to share your faith? Do it. God delights in using our weakness and our fears to make his name great. Now, I want to be careful here. In no way am I saying, or is Paul saying, that God delights in our sin. Okay, that's not what's happening here. When Paul says that he's content in his weaknesses, that he glories in his weakness, he is not talking about his sin because we're to never glory in sin, that God never delights in sin. Instead, we fight sin, we kill sin, we starve sin, we expose sin. Now, can God use our victory over sin through the Holy Spirit and his word as an encouragement to other believers to do the same thing? Yes. Can God use the temptations that we wrestle with to give us a more sensitive and tender heart to those who struggle the same way? Yes. But that is not the same thing as saying, God, thank you so much for my greed because I can minister now. Or I praise you that I fell into sin. Or I'm content with my lust here, okay? You cannot glorify God in our sin, but we can glorify him in our repentance, in our fight, in our pursuit of holiness, in our dependence to walk in his might and strength. Secondly, our left-handedness shows off his sufficiency. It shows off God's sufficiency. You know, when we face hard times, when our marriage is on the rocks, when we get that diagnosis from the doctor that is devastating, when you lose that job out of nowhere, it's in those moments of weakness you have a choice. 
Do you raise your fist against God or do you lean into him like never before? You know, the problem in our culture is that we are so obsessed with being strong and independent that when it comes to pain and suffering, we think that it's the worst possible thing that can ever happen to us. But what? But what if it wasn't? What if for God, the most important thing that he wanted from you was not your strength, but that God wanted your dependence? What if it's in your dependence, God does his best work in maturing you and making you more like Jesus? If that is true, and it is true, then what it tells us is that moments of weakness is not a curse, but it's meant to be a blessing. You know, Joni Erickson Tata last year reflected on her 50th anniversary of her diving accident, and she said this. Let me show it to you. She said this. I really would rather be in this wheelchair knowing Jesus as I do than be on my feet without him. Through her weakness, Joni learned that there was no greater treasure than Jesus Christ, that he was even greater than her legs and arms. That, my friends, is worshiping through your weakness. It is showing the world that Jesus is more than enough, that he is sufficient. God delights in using our weakness. God delights in using our left-handedness to make his name great. Now, here's the question for you. Are you weak enough for God to use you? Are you weak enough for God to use you? You know, more often than not, instead of admitting our weaknesses, what do we do? We hide them. We resent them. We excuse them. We hate being dependent on anybody. You know, I don't have to look any further than my children than to see that. That with my children, I'm constantly fighting with them on what they should eat, on what they should wear, on when to go to bed and sleep. The first three words that all my kids learned were these three words. No, no, no. No, no, no. That's the three words that they learn. That even as kids, they have enough pride to say to me, I'm strong enough, I'm smart enough, and I don't need you telling me what to do. Do you guys see that what gets us in trouble most of the time is not actually our weaknesses, but it's our delusion of strength. That this is the problem of Israel, that they too were too stubborn to admit that they were weak. Look at verse 14 and 15, 15 again. It's easy to miss this detail. Verse 14, and the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. 18 years. Verse 15, then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up and delivered to Ehud. Israel was enslaved for 18 years before they cried out. And in the next story with Deborah in chapter 4, verse 3, it took the nation 20 years to cry out. You would assume that after a week of this being conquered and being enslaved, that the nation would turn back to God. They don't do it. Their stubbornness, their pride, their self-sufficiency, their delusion of their strength kept them from crying out. And this is where we need to see again that the book of Judges is our story. That just like the Israelites, we don't confess and repent like we should. We don't call out for help as we should. We're not sorry until we get caught because we always think we're so strong. Like greed and gossip and anger and people pleasing. That we don't think this stuff is a big deal because we think that we can stop this anytime we want. We think that we're in full control. We are not. Because whatever we make our idol will always control us. 
For example, something like lust. That some of us might think that, you know what, we can stop anytime I want, so it's not that big of a deal. So instead of crying out for help, we rest in our pride. But here's the thing. If you are really in control, why hide in the dark? Why do we let it destroy our relationships and our marriages by setting up unrealistic expectations in a fantasy world? Why do we lie to others when they ask us, how's your walk with God going? You might think you're in control. You are not. That just like Israel, our strength doesn't free us, it enslaves us. Our left-handedness is not what we should worry about. It's our right hand of strength that we should worry about. Because our strength blinds us. It makes us prideful. It keeps us from seeking grace, from praying, from obeying, from repenting and confessing. Strong people will never follow Strong people will never depend. Strong people will never worship. Strong people will never make God's name great. But there is good news. Because there is a left-handed gospel for left-handed people. Because the gospel is not for perfect people. The gospel is for weak people. And it's when we admit our weaknesses and call out to God for help, our God will save and redeem us. And just like Israel, it might take us a while to own this, okay? We might be really stubborn with this, but our God will never, ever give up on this, on us. And we know this most fully because God, too, sends us the deliverer in our weakness. That just like Ehud, we have a left-handed deliverer. And it's his name is Jesus Christ. Isaiah 55, Isaiah 53 says this about Jesus. Let me show it to you. Jesus here had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. When Jesus came into the world... No one thought, there's the savior of the world. No one thought that. He, he was poor. He was from a blue-collar family. His mother had a sketchy reputation. He was a refugee. He was born in a barn. And Isaiah says here that there was no feature about him that made him stand out. In other words, Jesus, for all intents and purposes, was unimpressive. Also, Jesus was charged with being a liar, that the religious leaders, the politicians thought he was crazy because Jesus called himself the promised Messiah, but then his disciples also thought Jesus was crazy because Jesus, his life verse was, I have, I have not come to be served, but to serve. No Messiah ever talks like that. Jesus was killed like a common criminal. He was seen as a failure. If this guy could not save himself, how could he save others? Jesus came in weakness. He was born in weakness, he lived in weakness, he died in weakness. Our Savior came left-handed. But friends, our Savior did not stay weak. Because on the third day, he rose in power and glory. He rose in a perfected body. He rose justified. He rose to victory. And when the devil saw this, he pooped himself, okay? He pooped himself. That's what happened. Do you guys see this? Christ in his weakness was not the end of the story. It was the very way he showed off God's great name. That it was through the thorns he now sits on the throne. 
that it's through the cross he is now crowned. That it's through his death we have life. That it's through his loss we have gain. That it's through his poverty we have become rich. That it's through his surrender we are saved. This is the left-handed gospel for left-handed people. Amen? Amen. So what's the application for us here? Let God use your left-handedness to help others. You know, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says this. Let me show it to you here. Paul says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. As a follower of Jesus Christ, you have been comforted in your left-handedness so that you can comfort other left-handed people. That just like Jesus, sometimes that it's through our wounds we can bring healing to others. You know, for example, some of you come from broken homes. That these are painful, painful things to think about, let alone share. But God can use your story to remind others that God is still good. That he is a father who will never leave us or forsake us. This is one left-handed person helping another by proclaiming God's greatness. Or some of you are recovering some sort of, from some sort of addiction, maybe alcoholism. That you've shared your success and failures, the ups and downs, and God has used it to give hope to those who are also on the same path. That they're reminded through your left-handedness that the greater work of the Holy Spirit is greater than any power of addiction. That is one left-handed person helping another by proclaiming God's greatness. That we have couples in the church who have pushed past adultery in their marriage. That in the tears and in the hurt and in the eventual restoration, they were able to give hope to other couples who have experienced the same thing. That through your weakness, they see that forgiveness and grace are real and can prevail in the worst of situations. That is one left-handed person helping another by proclaiming God's greatness. And let me just give you one more example. Some of you may have struggled through a chronic illness or cancer or through miscarriages, and God has used your weakness to help others. Many years ago, my wife and I, we suffered a devastating miscarriage in our second trimester, and it was, it was devastating. It, it wrecked us, and it happened suddenly and quickly that one day you're dreaming about what life can be, and the next day you're planning for a funeral. It was and has been the worst time of our lives, that we felt so lonely and empty in that season. But one day, Susan and I got an email from a fellow park elder and his wife, Michael and Kelly, and I remember Susan and I were reading the email in tears because it was through their weakness we were reminded that God had not forgotten us. I want to read that email to you guys. This is the email that they sent to us during that time. It says this. Dearest Susan and Kenson, we are so sad for you and wanted to let you know. Michael and I lost baby Catherine as we were getting close to our sixth month of pregnancy and then suffered another miscarriage. 
We know the stab of pain and loss that comes with losing a child. The pain would gut punch me, but somehow God was uniquely transcendent at that time, and he delivered us. We would be the last person to offer cheap cliches, but we did learn these things. Heaven is more real. I will meet our girls one day. Those babies will frolic with Jesus and feel no pain, ever. Our eldest daughter, two and four at the time, was devastated, but grew us closer as a family. You will laugh again. Most importantly, Jesus knows your pain when I would get really sad. I would tell Jesus, you know my pain, you lost your only child, take care of my baby. This is part of our story, and if there's any comfort we can offer, it would be our joy. Your baby was a real life and was lost, and we honor him. Know that we are praying for you both and feeling for you. Kelly and Michael. This is one left-handed person helping another, helping us by proclaiming God's greatness. Friends, are you weak enough for God to use you? Step out in your weakness and let God use it. Because there's a left-handed gospel for left-handed people. Amen. Amen. Let's, let's bow our heads and pray. God, thank you for using our weakness. Because, God, it's that it's in our weakness you are shown strong. You are shown wise. You are shown compassionate. You are shown loving. You are shown sufficient. Your words come alive. Worship is moving. Community is precious. Father, would you help us to be weak enough so that we can make your name great? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.